0: Father, we come asking your blessing upon this unique time of the week where we gather to hear from you. Open the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful things from your word. May your spirit fill us with anticipation for what you will do in our lives as we meditate on the mercies of God shown in this text. Shine the light of the gospel of Jesus into the darkest places of our hearts that we might have peace today and for eternity. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. And all God's people said, if you are like me, you can feel the anticipation building right for the season that is just around the corner. I know many of you are anticipating spending time with family this Thanksgiving, maybe anticipating a relaxing day off of work, eating your favorite Thanksgiving Day sides. But I also would imagine that you are anticipating being asked a question on Thursday, a question that we are all too familiar with, a question that can maybe even silence a noisy dinner table, the question of, what are you thankful for this year? Maybe some anxiety is already building in your hearts as you imagine sitting at the dinner table with the pressure of your family's eyes staring back at you as you try to think of something different than the person who said family right before you. Like you stole mine. Uh, We may not enjoy being put on the spot in that situation, but I think we all can recognize one of the great blessings of this season is the opportunity to slow down and to meditate um, the many mercies of God. It's so easy for us, right, to meditate on all that is wrong uh, in the world. I think that comes naturally to us. And that's actually why I was so encouraged last week at our congregational meeting and how quick our congregation was to give praise to God for the mercy that had been, has been made known to them. Whether it was a miraculous medical intervention Uh, A blessing of a long-awaited child or simple gratitude for the love expressed through God's people. We as a church family uh, got the privilege of hearing evidences of God's mercy towards one another. And as we study this passage today, we get to spend some time meditating on the mercies of God as we look at a family who has gathered to celebrate the mercy of God in the birth of a miraculous baby boy. A boy that represented countless prayers, countless tears, and countless years of anticipation. But unbeknownst to this family, they would also witness the fulfillment of a mercy God promised long, long before their time. My hope this morning as we meditate on the many mercies of God known in this passage, that you would come to believe that God's tender mercy is for you a mercy that brings light into the darkest places of our hearts so that you may have peace with God you'll see our passage the structure looks a lot like last week's passage like last week our passage will starts with a short and powerful narrative and then it's followed by a song so this morning we're going to break up the narrative into two parts and we're going to break up the song into two parts as we trace four different ways God's mercy was shown to each of the main characters and then to us today. So first we'll see God's great mercy to Elizabeth. Second we'll see God's transforming mercy to Zechariah. Third we'll see God's promised mercy to Israel. And lastly we'll see God's tender mercy To us. Let's start with God's great mercy to Elizabeth. Look at verses 57 and 58 with me again. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. If you haven't been with us for our study in Luke, you may be wondering why is this such a great mercy? Why is everyone so excited about this baby boy? What makes him so special? We'll turn just maybe one page back in your Bibles to the beginning of chapter one, where we are first introduced to Elizabeth. Elizabeth and her husband, uh, Zechariah, were both from an esteemed priestly lineage, but yet they were marked by reproach and disappointment because Elizabeth was barren. She was without child and she was in her old age. Now, it's important to remember that in those days, not having the ability to continue the family name was a great cultural shame. And to make the pain even greater, people in those days often made the common and unfortunate uh, assumption that if you're unable to bear children, that was a sign of God's displeasure with you. Yet we know that that would be the wrong assumption here, for the text tells us in verse 6 of chapter 1 that Zechariah and Elizabeth walked blamelessly before God. Nevertheless, God in his perfect wisdom chose not to bless them with children. Until one day, by God's providence, her husband, Zechariah, was chosen by Lot to go into the temple to burn incense. And as he enters the temple by himself, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah bringing very good news. News that God has heard their prayers. Isn't that good news? And that God would bring Elizabeth's womb to life. And she would bear a son. They were to call his name John. And the text says, many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. So not only will his son be a miracle because of their old age. But he will be a prophet. Which Israel has not seen for 400 years. A prophet who will prepare the way for the Lord Yet, Zechariah's heart was slow to believe the words that the angel had said. And so, God silenced Zechariah, making him both mute and deaf until all these things were fulfilled, as we see the angel Gabriel say in verse 20. And sure enough, just as the uh, angel said, Elizabeth conceives and Elizabeth praises the Lord for taking away her reproach. Now, fast forward nine months. And we see God's great mercy go public. Verse 57, now the time came, or can be translated, the time was fulfilled for Elizabeth to give birth. Now, I think it's important that we acknowledge that it is no small thing, both today and no small thing back in the first century, for a woman to conceive a child, to carry a baby to full term, and then for a healthy mom to deliver a healthy baby. It is a mercy that we ought never to assume. The mercy of God is in the details if we have eyes to see it. Furthermore, this language of the time being fulfilled is not just a signal to us that Elizabeth is about to give birth, but the time had come for God's long anticipated promises to be made known. And we see Elizabeth gives birth to a son and a celebration ensues with her family and friends, just as God has said. Now I want us to make sure that we don't miss the power of this moment for Elizabeth. Just think, in her old age, how many births Elizabeth would have celebrated with family and friends. Think about how many times she has participated in the joy of another while deeply longing for the same blessing to come to her, right? It takes a true deep walk with the Lord to rejoice with those who receive a blessing from the Lord that you so desperately desire. And you've got to imagine, right, these relatives and neighbors knew of Elizabeth's longing for a child, And that even in the midst of her pain and reproach among the people, Elizabeth continued to serve and obey the Lord. And so they are eager to rejoice with her, recognizing God's great mercy. As I think about Elizabeth, the Lord calls to mind many women in our church who attend baby shower after baby shower, who sign up for meal train after meal train, who teach our kids week after week, women who choose to serve and rejoice with those who rejoice even though the Lord in his perfect wisdom has withheld the same mercy from them. How can they do this? I think they do this because they know that God does not dispense his mercy in response to our good works. If he did, it would no longer be mercy, right? Mercy by nature is undeserved. So when we recognize that God's mercy is a Grace and is not given on merit, but only given in according to his perfect good pleasure. We can rejoice with those who rejoice even when it hurts. Unfortunately, Satan, right, he often tempts us to isolate ourselves both from the joys and the sorrows of real deep relationships because of fear of being hurt or being reminded of the mercies we wish we would have, or maybe more accurately, the mercies that we think we deserve. And when we isolate ourselves or try to connect our merit to God's mercy or assume our sin maybe disqualifies us from God's mercy, we miss out on experiencing the holy happiness and peace available to the people of God. I love this quote by J.C. Ryle in his commentary on this passage. He says, how much more happiness would be in this evil world? If we in the church took joy in rejoicing with those whom the Lord has shown great mercy. Sympathy in one another's joys and sorrows cost little and yet is a grace of most mighty power. Friends, I don't know uh, what hard providence maybe the Lord has brought to your life. You may be longing for children, longing for a spouse, longing to be free from pain. But friend, you need to know that the Lord is not callous to your suffering and he's not asking you to pretend that it doesn't hurt when another receives from God what you desire but friends he's also calling you to resist the temptation to cut yourselves off from the mercy of God that is extended to you in Christ and in his body the church might it be that as God shows mercy to others he intends to use it to grow your understanding that God's love towards us is only measured at the cross where his son Jesus died in the place of sinners like you and me. And friends, when we look at life through the cross, we have the ability to see everything as a mercy of God, which gives us the ability to experience joy even when God shows a particular mercy to others. And my hope for us as a church is that no matter our circumstances, that we be a people who have eyes to see God's mercy and are ready to rejoice alongside the one to whom God's mercy comes. So we see the community rejoice alongside Elizabeth as they recognize the great mercy of God. But something, rather someone, right, is missing. In these first couple of verses, the baby is born, but Zechariah's mouth is still shut. Now, poor Elizabeth, Zechariah must have been the absolute worst birth partner, right? (laughs) Zechariah, go get some towels. (laughs) He's got no idea what's happening. Now, I don't think it's wrong for us to assume that Zechariah may have expected that once the baby was born, the time of his silence may be fulfilled. Yet we see that God was not done with Zechariah. God wanted eight more days to prepare him to proclaim his mercy at the proper time. So let's look at God's transforming mercy to Zechariah in verse 59 to 66. God's transforming mercy to Zechariah. You'll notice in these verses, they are packed with tradition. Traditions that may not be familiar to us in our day. First, we see that it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child in accordance with Jewish law. Circumcision was not simply a ritual, but a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham and his offspring way back in Genesis 17. It was a sign of God's mercy and covenant love towards the Israelites that set them apart from all other people on the earth. So this ceremony was a significant event. So important was circumcision that it was one of those few things that the Jews could do on the Sabbath. Second, we see it was a special day because the text infers that the people were expecting the baby boy to be named on this day. And we read that this crowd of family and friends were anticipating that he would surely receive a family name in line with tradition, especially considering the the circumstances. So when Elizabeth says in verse 60, no, he shall be called John, the family naturally turns to Zechariah, still in his cone of silent shame, what he wanted the boy to be called. For Elizabeth, she was surely mistaken. Before we unpack his response, let's consider what Zechariah has endured over the last nine months. Right, so for approximately 278 days, Zechariah has been unable to speak or unable to hear as a direct discipline from God. For his slowness to believe all that the angel told him in the temple. We think he's deaf here, too, because these people are making signs to him, right? If they, he wasn't deaf, they would just talk to him. But they're making signs, so we think he's both deaf and mute for all this time. Just imagine if you were a kid, right, you get in trouble, and your dad sends you to your room and says, go think about what you did for 278 days in silence, <laughs> right? We, we are a people who do not do well with silence, I read an article recently that said that it only takes four seconds for social anxiety to start kicking in when there is a lull in conversation that it becomes uncomfortable. You can probably gauge how much you hate this awkward silence by how much relief you feel when somebody else breaks a silence that's not you in those moments. We also don't do well with silence even when we're alone. I think with the advancement of the wireless you know, earbuds and headphones I would venture to guess that many of us go through the day with constant noise or distraction in our ears. And I I recently lost my headphones and I've been forced to spend time in silence. And it's kind of over my eyes to the amount of time I forfeit thinking deeply in silence. But for Zechariah, right, he, he didn't lose his headphones. For him, it was nine months of forced, complete silence. Nine months to think about what the angel had said. Nine months to think about what God was doing. Nine months to consider if God's word to him would come to pass or would he have to remain in silence forever. Now to be clear, the Lord has forced silence upon Zechariah not as a punishment to be served, but I think as an opportunity for an old man who has walked in righteousness before God to be further trained and transformed by the mercy of God. The question is, has Zechariah spent nine months hating God's discipline or embracing God's discipline and being willing to be transformed by it? We see evidence, right, that Zechariah has been trained by this difficult mercy from God as he takes a writing tablet and writes his name is John. I think Zechariah's words clue us in and how his heart has been changed. He does not write his name shall be called John like Elizabeth, but rather his name is John. I think this shows that he believes that his name, this boy's name has already been determined by God himself. Right, in these few written words, Zechariah makes clear to everyone that he is not the authority in this situation, as the crowd has assumed. But Zechariah shows that even under the social pressure of his family and friends and the weight of tradition, God owns the right to name this boy, for it is God's mercy that has caused this life to be created. And after this great display of humility and faith God's work is fulfilled and Zachariah's mouth is opened, his tongue is loosed, and the first words after nine months are blessing and praise to God. What an incredible moment of transformation, right? The man who nine months ago was slow to believe now is quick to praise and bless God and to testify to his mercy towards him. This transformation in Zechariah's life through the mercy of discipline begs a question to us. Are we learning from the discipline that God has chosen to put us through? Do we welcome his correction, his perfect godly wisdom and good authority? Or do we grumble against God believing that maybe he has made a mistake or that he's being unfair? Do we see God's discipline as evidence of his mercy and fatherly love, or do we see it as a punishment from a unloving and angry tyrant? Now, as a caution, we ought not to immediately assume when we encounter difficult circumstances in our lives that God is disciplining us in direct response to a specific sin, right? Zechariah had a very unique revelation from God. He knew exactly why he was silent, and while there are many times, there are times when our sin is so flagrant that the consequences that follow are easy to connect to our, to our sin. But most commonly, we, we don't know. And sometimes we will or we'll become aware of our need for correction through the conviction of the Holy Spirit as we read or hear God's word or through a brother or sister in Christ that has graciously called us to repent. But no matter how God's discipline comes, we can be comforted that God's discipline is never arbitrary and that he has a glorious purpose. Hebrews 12 reminds us of God's purpose for discipline. He says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For the moment, verse 11 All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Brothers and sisters, in difficult circumstances, whether they come to you directly because of your own sin like Zechariah, or they come by mysterious providence of the Lord, do you see it as an opportunity to be still before the Lord? And are you willing to be trained and transformed by his good and sovereign hand? And friends, the good news for us who those who put our faith in Christ, we know that we have never, we never received punishment from the Lord. The punishment for our sin has been put on Christ. Therefore, every trial, any hardship, any discipline, everything that comes into your life is the means God is choosing to form you into the image of his son. Again, God himself is never the author of, of evil, But what others mean for evil, God means for our good. And as Pastor Sam Alberry says, forming you into the image of Christ is the best good that can happen to you. It is the best good. And friends, far better is it to experience God's difficult mercy than to experience no mercy at all. How you respond to your circumstances will depend on what you think about the one who is in control of all your circumstances. Like Zechariah, may we too be transformed by the mercy of God. Looking back at our text, we see that the crowd, right, they leave in amazement. They spread the news of this amazing event. They ponder in their hearts what might be in store for this child for the hand of the Lord was with him. And Zechariah, like Mary sings a song glorifying the Lord in response to the mercy that has now been made known. Bringing us to a third point, God's promised mercy to Israel. God's promised mercy to Israel. Uh, This summer, I got the very, very difficult job of chaperoning the students at their Kings Island trip. It's very difficult uh, because I love roller coasters, so it's very hard. No, uh, I love roller coasters, and and those who know theme parks know that the trick to having a very good time at a theme park, aside from not eating a lot of fried food before you spin upside down, is making the very quick assessment, right, of whether or not the ride is worth the wait. Right? Is you have to make the quick assessment: is the hour I'm about to spend in this hot line in the summer going to be worth it? In the end. There's there nothing worse than spending hours in the hot sun and riding a ride and be like, that was not worth it at all. Well, the people of Israel have been waiting a very long time for God to speak. It has been 400 years since God has sent a prophet to reveal his will. So we need to recognize that Zechariah's breaking silence was not just a sign of mercy to Zechariah, but God breaking his silence to Israel. And up to this point, we've seen God work in kind of private messages through angels to Mary, to Elizabeth. But now, through Zechariah, God will speak to all of Israel. And what he says will make the 400 years worth the wait. Look at verse 67. You'll, you'll notice that like Mary's song, Zechariah's song of praise is packed with Old Testament imagery. We won't be able to unpack all of it in its detail, but I want to look at the, the main themes. Verse 68, he uses the language of visitation and redemption. And these words echo back to the most significant event in Israel's history, the exodus. The time when God's people were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years until one day God visits his people and raises up a prophet, Moses, to proclaim to the people that God has heard their prayers for deliverance. And with mighty acts of wonder, God rescues his people from slavery. And then in verse 69, what does he do? He evokes the name of David, reminding his hearers of God's promise that David's family line would come, one who would sit on the throne forever a powerful king, more powerful than David, a king that would trample on the enemies of God's people and to them be a mighty savior. And then in verse 72 and 73, he references Abraham and the covenant of God made to him and his offspring, a promise that they would become a great nation and that through them all the families of the earth would be blessed, a a promise that said that even if Israel, even if you abandon God who redeemed you, that God promised to show them mercy and bring them back into right relationship with him. So why is Zechariah recalling all of these events and promises? How in the world does this connect to the birth of John? Well, Zechariah, this is big. Zechariah, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is declaring that the salvation that God has brought about in Egypt, that the promise of the mighty King David, from his line and the covenant promise to Abraham and to his offspring are now being fulfilled in the events that are taking place in his time. Zechariah is prophesying that the recent mercies shown to Elizabeth and to Mary are signaling a new and better exodus, signaling a new and better David is here and a new and better salvation is at hand, that God has been faithful to all his promises to Israel. Though John is the child born, Zechariah's song focuses on the person to whom John will point the one promised long ago to Israel, who would save them from their enemies so that they may worship God in holiness and righteousness, just as their first father and mother did back in the Garden of Eden. And friends, I hope you recognize this Christmas season that we are not just celebrating a random act of God in history, but rather the fulfillment of history itself. Therefore, as we wait for the fulfillment of our time, we can trust that when Christ returns, it will be worth the wait for us as well. Zechariah waited nine months to speak. Israel waited 400 years for God to speak. And now God has spoken by his spirit that salvation is is at hand and it was worth the wait. Now the big question is what kind of salvation has come? Is God going to set up his king? Is he going to gather his army to destroy Israel's Roman oppressors? No. Instead, God's promised salvation will not come by weapons of war but through the forgiveness of sins. Look at verses 76 and 79, as we look at our last point, as we consider God's tender mercy to us, God's tender mercy to us. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the most high, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now we see, right, this song has, has turned a little bit. It's become more personal as Zechariah now prophesies over his newborn son. Can not you kind of imagine Zechariah you know, holding this long-awaited infant in his arms, meditating on all God's mercies that had been made known to him, and now getting to tell his son the role that he will play in God's redemption. That John would be a prophet of the Most High who would prepare the way for the Lord just as the angel had said. A prophet that would act as a bridge between the promises of the Old Testament and the soon-to-be-realized promises of the New. And how will John prepare the way for the Lord? How will he do this? He will prepare the way by making known to God's people that the plan of salvation that has been unfolding since Adam and Eve were banished from the garden will not be brought about through forceful conquest or through an overthrow of an earthly government, but salvation would come through the forgiveness of their sins. John is not the one who will forgive sins, but he will give knowledge to God's people of who can take away their sins. You see, the biggest problem for the Israelites was not the Romans. And our biggest problem today is not a government, it is not rising inflation. The biggest problem we have is our sin, because our sin separates us from a holy God. The big question that hangs over the whole Old Testament is how can an unholy people, full of sin, dwell with a holy God? How can God's people get back into the garden? a place without sin, a place where God's image bearers experience perfect peace with their maker. And all throughout history, people have tried everything in their own power to reach up to God. They built towers to try to get to God. They made sacrifices to please God. They tried to obey God's word, yet nothing in their own power could solve the problem of sin. We could not reach up to heaven And so heaven came down to us. Look back at verses 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the way of peace. The word sunrise or rising sun, right? which you may see translated as dayspring, Echoes back to the Old Testament again in a prophecy in Numbers 24 that says, A star shall rise in Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel who will crush the head of Israel's enemies. The new exodus that God is bringing about is not going to be a parting of the Red Sea, but the parting of heaven. As the Son of God, the Son of Righteousness will pierce the darkness of this world, showing all the way of peace. Peace with God made possible By the cross. John is from earth, but Jesus is from heaven. Jesus is the sunrise come down from on high. Jesus is the promised mighty king of David. It's in Jesus we have a new and better redemption, for he saves us from the slavery to our sin, making atonement for us at the cross. And at the cross, Jesus makes a way for those who are in darkness, who are separated from God to be made righteous by taking the punishment reserved for our sin. And friends, this is the only way to be made right with God. We will not be accepted by God through a list of sins we haven't done or a list of virtues that we pursue, but only because of the tender mercy of God that he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Zechariah recognized the mercy of God in giving him a son. But Zechariah knew that this precious mercy to him pointed to a greater mercy. That God would send his son into the world to save sinners like Zechariah and like you and me. Friends, I I don't know what burdens you uh, carry into this room this morning. I don't know what hardships you have endured. What mercies of God that you have long desired and have gone unfulfilled. But friends, I hope that you might know that God's tender mercy is for you in Christ. That no sin is too great, no grief is too dark for the light of Jesus to guide you to the way of peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. Friends, his tender mercy is for you. John's birth wasn't right; ultimately about John, but about the one whom he was pleased to point. How fitting is it that 30 years later, after John ends his time in the wilderness and he makes his public appearance, that he would see Jesus pass by and what would he say? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May we meditate this Christmas season on this mercy that has been made known to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of the tender mercy that you offer us in Christ. Thank you for being faithful to your promises to us. And father, I know for many uh, in this upcoming season, it will come with a lot of mixed emotions as we may be reminded of old sin or broken relationships, broken families, or the sting of death. And so I pray that you would make your mercy known to them. Would we see all of life through the tender mercy of the cross? That reminds us that all the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us who trust in Christ. Help us to believe, Lord, that trusting you and obeying you in this time will be worth it when we see you again. And I pray for anyone here who is in search of peace, that they would look no further than the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, who has been made known to them this morning. Would they begin walking today that path of peace guided by your Son? Lord, thank you for forgiving our sin as we long for the day when our faith is made sight and all God's people said. Amen.